0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you all. I just wanted to uh, say a few things, um, kind of uh, just a few kind of informal announcements. The the, the first is um, next week after church, we're going to have a quick prayer meeting in the, uh, the room next to the church. Uh, there's just some pretty significant pastoral issues that are happening at the moment, and there's going to be some time when I can, um, like, tell you what what's happening at that meeting. A, a fair few of them I can't, but we're going to pray for those things because. We are, we are a people that believes that God that works through prayers, and so we're going to do that, and so you might want to come to that after the service next week. Um, the other thing is, um, we're, we're starting off a six-week sermon series on sex and relationships, and one of the things that, that I know is going to happen is this going to cause all kinds of issues to be raised. Some of us are dealing with uh, past sexual sin or present sexual sin. Some of us are uh, dealing with um, marriages that are nowhere near where we want them to be. And this is a series that is going to push buttons. This is a series which is going to point out some things in our lives that, that are different or potentially painful. Here's what I don't want you to do. Here's what you shouldn't do. What you shouldn't do... Is just go okay. I'm just going to put that to one side and keep going. If this sermon series raises issues for you, please come and talk to me or Tim or Kate, or or maybe your growth group leader or something like that. No one, whatever you come up with, whatever you say, we are not going to condemn you for it. We're not going to judge you. We want to love you and help you. Okay, and so that's what we're going to do. Okay. One of the things that we do at at church is always give a a book away that's going to help you grow as a Christian. And this is a book that I've just read this week. It's by Ed Shaw. It's A Short Christian Introduction to Purposeful Sexuality. Uh, I wonder if you have thought about what, what is your sexuality for? Why is it there? Maybe you're going, I'm too old. You know, I'm not really sexual at all, actually. This book actually says something to all of us, no matter where we're at in life. I'm going to put that right down here, as I usually do. That's free. Just go and grab it. And um, over, the, over this next six weeks, we'll be giving away a bunch of different books that are kind of relevant to the topics that we're looking at. But make sure you have um, John 4 open. There is a outline on the back table. You may want to grab that because there are some pretty significant quotes that I'll be reading from. But how about we pray and we jump in. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at uh, your word today, I pray that you would speak to us. You would speak to us whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we are um, you know, divorced, widowed. Lord, help us to see what our life is all about and therefore what our relationships are meant to be all about. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give us your perspective, the right perspective on our relationships, on our sexuality. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My grandmother used to live in San Susie, uh, down near the Shire. And I remember sitting with her uh, just on, on the couch one day, and there's a photo of her and my grandfather, who I never got to meet, he passed away before I was born, and I said, so tell me, why did you end up with with grandpa? And she goes, oh, well, he was good-looking, and he came from a nice family, and he was really nice, and I thought we could make a life together. And I thought, as a 16-year-old, I was like, mate, that sounds so boring. He's good-looking, he comes from a nice family, all this kind of thing. And, And then we were talking I I, I said, How did kind of relationships, dating, marriage work? And she goes, Oh, well, well, what would happen is you'd know a boy from the area. Maybe, you know, you go to the same, you know, club or the same school or the same church. And basically they're a nice, they're from a nice family. And, you know, there's nothing too wrong with them. So you get married and you build a life together. And that's what would happen. And once again, I was like, Man, that's so unromantic, isn't it? Because back in my grand's day, you would find a marriage partner for very different reasons that we find partners today. Very, very different reasons. Gran and her generation thought, well, nice family, good job. Yeah, we, we can make this happen. And so it usually happened like that. Have a listen... And kind of note the difference between what my grandmother and people of her ilk were looking for and what this girl on social media says about her boyfriend. He's different from everyone because he's a -a one-of-a-kind human being. There is no one in the world like him. He is stunning and I'm amazed by him every day. He's made me a better person for having known and loved him. Three months going on strong, and I'm still obsessed with him. He's my best friend. He makes me complete. Can, can you hear the difference, right? My grandmother was like, oh, you know, no, good looking, good family, that kind of thing. Nowadays, we're looking for someone to complete us someone who's going to make our life bearable, someone who is, when we meet them, is going to improve our lives so much that they're going to cover up all our faults. And that's the person we're looking for. There was was a man um, named Ernest Becker, and he wrote a book, an amazing Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And the whole book is about when we deny death, how it affects every area of life. And he talks about romance. And here's what he says. He, he's, here's the quote um, from, from, there's two quotes on your outline from him. Here's one of the things he says. When, when we become obsessed, when we are looking for someone to complete us, here's what happens. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life or spiritual and moral needs now become focused in on one individual. In one word, the love object is God. What he's saying is, nowadays, because we're trying to find someone who will complete our lives, who will make us better in every way, we're actually not trying to find a human. We're trying to find something to worship. He goes on and he says this, here's another quote, "The failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much part of modern man's frustration. No, human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idealize, so idolize him, the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the, to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, our feeling of nothingness, we want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give this. Do you hear what he's saying? When we look to someone, an earthly person, to fulfill us in every way, we will never find someone like that. No human partner can give you this. Now, now, here's the thing. A a lot of us here are going, well, hands, that's not relevant to me because I'm already married. I'm already married. I'm not searching for someone to date. I'm not searching. I'm I'm married to someone. But here's the problem. I think the reason why we're so frustrated in marriages today is because we're expecting something from our partner that they cannot give. We're expecting that our marriage partner will fulfill our lives, will complete us, will make our lives worth living. Now, some of us have been married for 20 years and we think, or 20 or more years, or 13, almost 13 like me, or, or whatever, and, and, and we're thinking, or maybe even less than that, but we're thinking, oh man, that's ridiculous. I don't think that. I'm not saying you necessarily think that. I'm, I'm asking what your heart feels. See, because we can hear this idea that looking for something in our And a love mate-like completion is ridiculous. But our heart still wants that. Because a lot of the time, our heart has been influenced by our world. And our world says, if you find the person, the right person, they will complete you. If you find the right person, your love, your, your life will always be beautiful and magical. And yet... You weren't meant to be completed by just a mere human. We're going to see today what life is actually really on about. We're going to see, uh, we're going to kind of hear a conversation Jesus has with a woman who is so, so contemporary to us. In fact, she could just be a person that we share the, the train to, to and from work or the bus. She could be our next door neighbor. She is so contemporary. And we're going to see how we should think about our relationships, our romantic relationships, and how Jesus influences them. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see that Jesus offers radical inclusion. He shows us our radical problem, and he offers a radical solution. Jesus offers radical inclusion. He's going to show our radical problem and he's going to offer a radical solution. Now, if you've never read the Gospel of John before, it's one of the biographies about Jesus. And it was written only a, a, a short time, actually, in historical terms, after, after Jesus died and rose again. And so what we, hear, what we have here is a good historical uh, kind of recollection of what Jesus said And so let's have a look how Jesus offers radical inclusion in verse 4 with me. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know. Now, back in Jesus' day, what you wouldn't do is you wouldn't go through Samaria. Samaria was kind of like these kind of half-breed Jews that you hated. You just hated, right? That's why Jesus talks about um, the good Samaritan, because a Samaritan no one thought was good, right? And so what you would do generally is you would cross the Jordan, go around to the other side to avoid Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because I think he's got a divine encounter or a divine appoint, uh, appointment with this woman. But but not only that, did you see where he, where he ends up? He's at a well. Now, what you've got to realize is especially in the book of Genesis, but all the way through the Old Testament, wells were a place where men kind of found available women for wives either for themselves or for people that they were serving. And so this, Jesus is at the kind of maybe, maybe this is pushing a bit too far, but the match.com of his day, right? Instead of going to a website, you know, he's at a well, right? And so, so there's all these overtones here and let's have a look who rocks up have a look at verse 7 with me when a samaritan woman came to draw water jesus said to her will you give me a drink now now there's a number of things that you've got to get here first of all did you see what time it was in verse 6 it is about the 6th hour now we we tell time in a 24-hour kind of sequence Back in Jesus' day, they didn't. You will basically count the hours from when the sun rose. So this is in the middle of the day. Here is a woman who's going out to get water in the middle of the day. Now, you know from seeing, like, you know, the World Vision sponsor ads, you know, those kind of things. When do women generally get water? It's at dusk or dawn, the coolest parts of the day. She is going out in the middle of the day, and she's going out absolutely alone. So there's kind of some red flags here. But also, here is a Samaritan woman. Jews did not associate with Samaritans, as she says later. In fact, back in Jesus' day, you would not talk to a woman one-on-one in a kind of private location like this or, or, or like without a bunch of people around. It just wouldn't be done. And not only that, Jesus, as we're going to see, has supernatural insight. He knows that this woman has got a history. So all these red flags are going off. And Jesus asks her for a drink. I think that's really significant because as we're going to see, Jesus is going to love her and care for her. Jesus is going to offer her something. And I wonder whether this is the first man that's offered her friendship in years and not wanted anything more. Let's have a look at that conversation. The woman said to him in verse 9, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask for me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Here is Jesus offering her radical friendship. Offering her to be included in the people he loves just by offering her a drink. This is not just merely a drink, there's far more to it than this, and she knows that. This is almost kind of a brokering peace between Jews and Samaritans in a very small way. This is huge. Now, what I want you to do, if you've got your Bibles open, I just want you to flip back to John chapter 3 for me. Just John chapter 3. And what you'll see, we're not going to read it, but I just want you to see the heading to it. At the start of John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was uh, kind of uh, Israel's teacher. He was kind of like what we would call the Archbishop of Sydney if we were Anglicans, right? He is the kind of religious leader of Israel. Not only that, he was very smart. He had his theology together. He had his morality together. In every way, this guy is a good religious person. And then in chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a woman who doesn't have a morality together, in fact, far from it, and doesn't have her theology together, who's actually made a mess of her life. Now, I don't know where you stand on that moral gradient. Maybe you're really good and you're really religious. Can I just say, if that's you, that's great. We're glad that you're here. But maybe you're here and you're more like the woman in John 4. Maybe you have made a mess of your life morally. Can I just say, Jesus is interested in you. We're interested in you. And we're glad, glad you're here. And you know the beautiful thing about you coming to church? And I, First of all, I just want to say thank you. It is so brave for you to come to church. But, but can I just say, look around at the people around you. The great thing about you being here is everyone here has made a mess of their lives. Everyone has made a mess of their lives here. And that's why we trust in Jesus. Because you know what Jesus does? He takes messy lives and he puts them back together. And everyone here is being worked on by Jesus in that way. And so we're so glad that you're here. Here is Jesus offering radical inclusion, radical friendship, and he crosses so many different barriers to talk to this woman, and he's done that for you and for me. I, I remember uh, when I was in uh, a bunch of covers bands, you would kind of you wanted to kind of end the whole night. You'd do three sets generally. You'd end the whole night on a banger, you, you, and, and usually you would want one song that had profound lyrics that everyone could sing along to. And uh, so there was one particular band, we used to end every show with, with a song that had such profound lyrics, everyone could sing along to. Very romantic, too. Here are some of these profound romantic lyrics. And I would walk 500 miles. And I would, you, you guys know this song, I would walk 500 more, right? And what was funny is, after you know, three hours of playing at this, a gig at Three Eyes Monkeys or something like that, you're seeing this guy, and he's just met this girl, and he's probably had too much to drink, and he's just screaming out these lyrics to her. And I just wanted to go out to these guys and just go, you're lying. You're, you're not go- you just met this girl. You're not going fi- to walk to Melbourne and then back just for this girl. This just not going to do that. Because you, you're, you, you kind of sang through this song that you love her that strong. No, you just met her. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. He hasn't walked 500 miles. But when he was on earth, he walked into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be crucified and die for you. He, he didn't walk 500 miles, but he walked up the hill of Calvary carrying a cross for you. He may not have walked 500 miles, but he was nailed to a cross for you. He, he crossed from heaven to earth and from life to death, from acceptance to, his God, uh, to, to his God, uh, the, the Father God in heaven to being rejected on the cross for you. The the radical acceptance and inclusion that Jesus offers this woman is only possible because he has died. He will die for her. He offers you radical inclusion. And if you know him, you have this radical inclusion, this radical friendship with Jesus because he died for you. He died for you. No and here's the thing, this is so important. As we start a sermon series on sex and relationships where there, is so, there can be so much guilt, so much shame. The thing is, your relationship with Jesus is not based on where your holiness is right now. No, it's based on what Jesus has done to you for you. Can you get a picture of how important you are to Jesus? Can you get a picture of how loved you are by Jesus? Jesus offers us radical inclusion by what he's done on the cross. But he also shows our radical problem. Have a look at verse 15 with me. Actually, let's go from verse 10, sorry. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that, gives, uh, that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It, it's almost like he's saying, you don't realize who I am. I, I would have given you living water. Now, not this kind of tepid, disgusting water, but, the, but something far better than this. In, in, in uh, the scriptures and in the writings of Jesus' day, the rabbis would talk about living water, something that God would give, that would give a, a radical change in our lives. That this is what we are searching for, and Jesus is offering that. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Uh, you know, she, she doesn't get what Jesus is saying, and she's still thinking he's talking about, a oh, well, Jesus answered in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying this by using this metaphor of, of living water. He is saying, if you come to know me, you will have eternal life. In in John chapter 3, he offered eternal life to Nicodemus. He's offering her the same thing here. But notice how she replies. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Can, can Can you hear the pain there? Can you hear the heartbreak there? She wants this water because then she wouldn't have to walk out to this well. She knows she walks out to this well because she has made a mess of her life and she's been rejected by so many people. And every time she goes out to this well, it's a reminder of the mess that she's made in her life. Every time she goes out in the blazing hot sun, she's gathering water for herself and for a man who doesn't love her enough to marry her. Every time she goes out, she knows that she is so alone and being rejected. Oh, oh, Jesus, will you just give me this water so I don't have to come here? And so what does Jesus say? Verse 16, he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Here is Jesus. The light of the world shines a light into the dark recesses of her life. And he points out something really significant. What has she been doing? I think what she's been doing is going from man to man to man to to find security, love, life, sex. And for whatever reason, when one didn't work out, she goes to the next one and she goes the next one and next one. She's tried to find the living water that will make her life complete in these romantic relationships. And here she is, alone, tired, and thirsty, and totally unfulfilled. And I actually think we live in a world with people who are like this woman. We have tried to find our life in romantic relationships and what happens? We, we find ourselves tired, alone, thirsty, and totally unfulfilled. Our radical problem with relationships, whether they be marriage or dating or, or whatever, it, it, it is actually we put those romantic relationships a lot of the time at the center of our lives. Well, we have looked to them for something only God can give. And here's the problem when you put someone other than Jesus or something other than Jesus at the center of your life, and you're saying, I am going to be fulfilled by this, and it could be a job or it could be money, or as we're talking about romantic relationships, we're actually worshipping that thing. And so, so many of us are bowing at the idol of romance and of sex and of marriage. We're worshipping, and worshipping happens all the time. There was an American author named David Foster Wallace, and he and he made, he made gave an, a commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College, and he says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only chance we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or some spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when, the time, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need more power ever over others to numb you, you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. He, he's not a Christian. And he is saying we all worship something. And I dare say there are people in this room who are actually... They, they know intellectually that it's a dumb thing to worship your spouse. But you are actually worshipping your spouse because you are trying to find in them completion, everything in them. You're trying to find in them something that the world hasn't given you. You're trying to find in them fulfillment. And that is why your marriage is on the rocks. because you're expecting far too much. Now, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk in a couple of weeks about what we can do to actually work on our marriages and what the Bible says. And that's really important. But one of the biggest things that we've got to do is make sure that our expectations line up with reality. Now, some of, you, some of us here have gone through a, a time where we have lost the spouse. And one of the things that happens when we see that our spouse is at the center of our our lives, we can't live without them and then we're absolutely, utterly devastated. (coughs) We can't function without them. And so our life is no longer bearable. Now, I'm not saying for one second that losing a spouse is not... One of the the most heartbreaking thing that you can ever go for, or go through, or one of the most. But are you going to be so crushed by it that you can't live your life? Yes, there's a period of mourning and grieving. But I wonder if if your grieving and mourning has gone on and on and on, does that show you? that you actually worshipped your spouse and not Jesus. But some of us, it's actually worse, some of us are actually considering an affair in this room. Statistically, at least one person in this room is. Maybe it's someone at work, maybe it's someone you, you know, we play a sport with, maybe it's just someone we met at a cafe Why? Why are you doing that? I dare say it's because you have been looking to your spouse for everything, for fulfillment, for for magic in your life. And guess what? They're not giving that to you. And so you are looking to other people for that. Can I just say this? You're not going to find it in them. Yeah, you have an affair, it'll feel really great for a while, all that kind you know, it'll feel like your heart will skip a beat, whatever it is, but guess what? In 6, 12, 3 years, it won't matter. That person will be just as annoying as your spouse. The problem, There will be just as many problems in your relationship as you do have now because you are still looking to someone on this earth but only what God can give. This week I called a friend, um, and he had an affair. And I said, looking back, and we're, we're talking 15 years ago now, why, why, why did you have an affair? And he said, I wasn't satisfied. She wasn't giving me what I wanted. And I said, well, what did you want? And here's what he said. I wanted fun. I wanted to feel alive. I wanted our relationship to be full of wonder. I wanted life to make sense around her. C- can you hear how that's absolutely impossible? Like, I love Kate. I-, I really do. I am so glad that she's in my life. But she- her job is not to make me feel alive. Her job is not to make my life have a a sense of wonder. Her job is not to make me feel like, you know, the world makes sense. No, that is God. That is not Kate. And so, if you are thinking of having an affair today, even if it just crosses your mind occasionally, give yourself a harsh dose of reality. Remind yourself that the thing that you're looking for in another person is only found in Jesus. And stop worshipping this, uh, even a made-up person, and worship Jesus. Because you may destroy your life and actually find out that that you're looking for what you wanted in the wrong place and what a tragedy that will be. So what, what Jesus is doing here is he offers, he shows our radical problem. Our radical problem is we worship anything other than him. And finally, he offers a radical solution. Have a look at verse 19 with me. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jesus. I think she's just going, oh, Jesus, this is too painful. Let's talk, um, you're a prophet, let's talk about theology, right? Where should we worship, right? But she's playing into Jesus' hand. Have a look at verse 21. Believe me, a woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Your, you mountains worship, or, sorry, you Samaritans, sorry, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and it has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, "I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us." Then Jesus declared, "I who speak, excuse me, I who speak to you, am He." She's going, well, let's talk about worship. Should we worship on this mountain or should we worship Jerusalem? And then she asks about the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's me. He, he, he says, you will worship one day with Spirit and in truth through the Holy Spirit which comes. And Jesus is called the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what Jesus is saying here is is to this woman, I'm the one you are seeking. I am the one that you are meant to worship. Worship is no longer about a a, a mountain. It's about the Messiah. It's not about a place. It's about a person. It's no longer Jerusalem. It's about Jesus. Woman, don't you realize I am the one that you are meant to be seeking and worshiping? And what's really interesting in the whole Gospel of John Here is the only place where Jesus is explicit about who he is. She asks him a direct question and he says, yes, that's me. He doesn't do that in the rest of the Gospel of John. Yes, he claims to be God in the Gospel of John, but it's kind of veiled. It's veiled. And it's interesting, Here is the God of the universe. Who does he fully reveal himself to with no veil? to a woman who's made a mess of her life. Because God is in the business of helping messy people. See, because here's the thing what Jesus is saying to us in our relationships, is this. Our relationships start with putting him and the gospel at the center of our lives. See, when you you put Jesus at the center of your universe when you worship him, then the central piece of your existence is in the right place. When you know Jesus, that's when you'll have belonging and identity and transcendence and mystery and awe. That's when life will make sense. That's when you will be full of wonder. It's it's only when you worship Jesus that those will get. Now, here's the thing. When you know Jesus and you can see the sacrifice that He has made for you, that's when you know that your marriage and your relationships is not about your fulfillment. It's actually about you serving your spouse as Jesus has served you. So, whatever your spouse needs, that's what. You're meant to give them if you can. So let's make it really, really practical, right? I've been married for almost 13 years, and one of the things that Kate needs from me is I need to actually help around with the dishes and cleaning up and that kind of thing. We have a weekly check-in, and she says that all the time, and I try my best, and she reminds me of that. And so what have I got to do as a loving husband? I've got to go out of my way to help her in that way. And can I just say, for me as a bloke, especially who lived as a single guy for a bunch of times with other single dudes, my threshold for mess is really high, but Kate's isn't, so I need to serve my wife. Some of you guys have uh, have got a wife who needs you to hear, she needs from you words of love. She needs to hear from you that you love her. She needs to hear from you that you care about her. And so what are you going to do? You're going to Give her those words. Now now you're probably going, "Well, hands." I I come from a culture or a family or whatever that that didn't. That's great. Do it anyway. Because I had nine years of living as a single guy, I developed a culture where mess was fine. And so, no, I cannot make that excuse. And so, brothers, if you have not told your wife you loved her, here's what you're going to do today. You're going to sit across from her and you are going to tell her you love her and tell her all the things that you love about her and all the things that you appreciate her for, all the things that you thank God for when you think of her. That's what you're going to do. And you know what you're going to do tomorrow? You're going to do the same thing. And you know what you're going to do on Tuesday? What's, the, what's one of the number one things on your to-do list? To, say, to have that conversation with your wife again and again and again. See, because that's what our wives need a lot of the time. And a lot of, a lot of the women are in this room are starving for those words. And so you're going to serve your wife like that. Because Jesus first served you. And what you will find as you serve your spouse, your marriage will become far more enjoyable because you have found what your marriage is all about. You serving your spouse as Jesus has served you. When I was 16, I went over with my, um, with my dad. I think I was 16, 15 doesn't really matter. Over to Denmark, just the two of us, and um, we had this long layover in uh, Southeast Asia. I forget the country, but it was so boring. And and there was this older couple. They would have been in their seventies, and just sitting there. And there was the wife turned to her husband and said, oh, "Where are we?" She looked kind of scared. And he said, "Oh, we we're, we're, we're in this we're in an airport." She goes. Oh, where are we going? And he goes, we're going to London. And she said, oh, I've always wanted to go to London. Oh, this is going to be great. And then she went back to reading a book. Would have been 15 minutes later, she looked up, kind of panged. She goes, where are we? He said, oh, we're in an airport. And she goes, oh, where are we going? She said, oh, we're going to London. She goes, oh, I've always wanted to go to London. This is great. This happened pretty much every 15 to 20 minutes for three hours. And I didn't get what was going on. I was 16, and I, after this, I just turned to him and said, hey, mate, what's wrong with your wife? Which, can I just say, it wasn't really sensitive. I was 16, you know, all that kind of stuff. I hope I've learned a bit more sensitivity now, but that's what I said. And he said, um, she's got Alzheimer's. And we're going to London because she's always wanted to go to London. We're going to take a bunch of photos around so that, you know, when she doesn't remember that we've been to London, she could look through the photos. And I said, like, isn't it just really hard? Like, I know like my friend has got a grandmother who's got Alzheimer's. They just put her into a home. And he goes, Oh yeah, but I love my wife. And I love just just caring for and serving her. That's what I want to do until, you know, until one day I can do that no more. And as a 16 year old, I got a glimpse of what marriage is meant to be like. Here is a man, I don't know if he's a Christian, but he is serving his wife as Jesus has served him. And if you're a Christian today, you know that that's how you're meant to live. Serving your spouse, how are you doing that? Because when you realize that Jesus has offered this radical solution to himself, we worship him, we will find satisfaction in him and we will be able to serve our spouses. And you know what? She finds satisfaction in Jesus. Have a look at verse 28 with me. This is the last thing. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She leaves her water jar behind. Why? Because her thirst has been quenched. And her life of shame is now a life of proclamation. Because now she can see her whole life through the lens of Jesus. Here is a man who's told me everything that I have lived. And there's no, there seems to be no shame here. It's only glorifying the one who knows everything that she's ever done and loves her anyway. The first point we've got to get when, when we think about our, our romantic relationships is this, is that we're looking for everything the world says that we'll find in a romantic partner in Jesus. And only when we put that peace in place will our relationships, our romantic relationships function in the way they're meant to. Let's pray. Father God, as we uh, think about over the next six weeks and our, as, as you change our lives through looking at your word, thinking about sex and relationships, I pray I pray that we would have a radically Christ-centered view of our sexuality, of our relationships. That we would not be looking for for the things that only you can give in other people, but we would find our identity, our life, our purpose, our everything in you. And therefore, if we're married, we are then free as you have served us, we're free to serve our spouse, to give them as much as we can, of what they want and they need. Lord, help us to do that well. For those of us who are single here, Lord, help us to realize if we are looking for someone to spend the rest of our lives with, that we will only find in you what our world says to find in them. And so, Lord, help us to have a a biblical... A God-centered, a Christ-centered view of our sexual relationships, our sexuality and our relationships. And we pray that our relationships reflect what you have done for us. Amen. Let's stand and sing the thankfulness we can have to come to Jesus and come to know God. Thank you.